Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. We're in part two of our series, Another New Normal, where we're trying to start off 2023 uh, maybe a little bit better, or at least more intentionally than we ever have. Uh, started off an, a new year in the past. Uh, this morning, though, uh, I want to bring us back to last week, part one of the series, and we talked about this graphic. We talked about the absolute limit of our human capacity and the pace at which we're running, and we applied this to our time. And one of the takeaways was how you spend your time is how you spend your life. Your time is limited, so limit your time. And we're going to take this idea and biblically apply it to our money and our financial resources in just a little bit this morning. But as we do that, I got to press pause, kind of pump the brakes just a little bit. Because as we do that, I got to highlight the fact that in many ways, I have the best seat in the house to see what Jesus is up to here in our community because I get to see glimpses. I hear the stories of life change. I get to see things all the time, kind of being on the inside of stuff um, that, that most of us, many times, we don't get to see. So when I see God moving in a powerful way, I've got to like pump the brakes a little and say, hey, listen, I want to make sure we are all seeing that powerful thing. And it has to do, like I said, with money and financial resources this morning. Uh, some of you might be aware that throughout the year we've been carrying and, and building up this uh, little bit of a, of a deficit running into the month of December. Uh, at least if you read those newsletters that we send out every week, you might be aware of some of those, uh, some of those realities coming into the month of December. And I gotta say, um, God's provision welled up so powerfully through your generosity in the month of December uh, that not only were we able to hit the, the goal, the forecast of December, but, but actually almost twice as much as the forecasted amount, completely eroding, completely um, uh, eroding away the deficit that we had carrying in through 2022 and in fact leaving us with a bit of a surplus at the end of the year. So I just want to say... It's so cool. It's so cool. Like, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to see. Uh, but my, my heart uh, for all of you uh, is, is to point out that these are numbers, but they're also stories. And each one of those, I know it, it's a story of how you made sacrifices in order, in order to declare your trust in Jesus. In order to say, I'm going to live an open-handed kind of life, I'm not going to live closed-fisted. I'm not going to try to hang on to every single grain of, uh, of material that comes through my hand. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to allow my, my life to be commanded by consumerism. I'm going to trust the generosity of Jesus and bank on that generosity every single time. And, and those numbers, as they came in through the end of the year, it was just another declaration of that. And so I, I, it's, just, it's so encouraging. It's so awesome to, awesome to see. And as we have this conversation today, I think it, it changes the tone a little, right? As a reminder, God doesn't want anything from you. He wants everything for you. And some of you got to experience the life of generosity, the open-handed kind of life. And so my encouragement to you and my hope for you is, is don't quit, right? Keep on going, right? And, and along with that is to, is to ask ourselves, each one of us to ask ourselves, how might God be growing that heart of generosity as we come into 2023? And so with that, we, um, we move into part two of the series where we talk, we talk this morning about trying to find another new normal as it relates to our financial resources, as it relates to our money. And I'm going to introduce this, uh, this idea to you that I think could powerfully revolutionize uh, how, how you spend your year financially. I think it could change households. It could change relationship dynamics. I mean, this thing is a 
It's huge for me personally, but I just want to say, as, um, as monumental as this idea is, once I share it with you, I think the collective reaction is like, yeah, dummy. Like, that makes sense. Like, I got, like, true already, but we just don't stop all the time, and we, and we don't so much think about it. So this is the principle that we're really building everything from uh, biblically here this morning, is that there is a difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. See, those two things are actually not the same thing. There's a difference. There's actually a real tangible difference between your standard of living and your quality of life. And I just want to like highlight that for us today uh, because sometimes we conflate those two ideas. And when we do that, some dangerous things happen. And it's easy to do that because there's a lot of people that would have us conflate these two ideas, your quality of life and your standard of life of living. Advertisers, and I've got no problem with advertisers. I'm not like an anti-marketing thing. In fact, there's all kinds of businesses, there's all kinds of products and services that probably need to be marketed to like get out there a little bit more. And so if you're like a marketing student or if you're like just starting off in that career, you've done it for a long, long time, like awesome. I'm not against you. I am for you. Okay. But, but marketing executives and marketing students would have us kind of like conflate these two ideas that, listen, once you increase your standard of living, your quality of life will go up too. And, and it's just sort of easy to conflate these things. It's sort of easy to believe that the one necessarily follows the other. That if we drive better, if we eat better, if we date better, if we vacation better, if the standard of living goes up, the quality of life will quickly follow behind. And I just want to press pause on that one and say, that's it's not true. And a lot of us, a lot of you know that it's not true. Because you're living at a higher standard of living than you've ever lived before. And you're like, oh, my quality of life hasn't kept pace. It hasn't stayed in lockstep with the standard of living. And I love this saying that it's wise to learn from your mistakes. It's even wiser to learn from somebody else's mistakes. <laughs> so learn from my mistakes. Because, I mean, I've seen this thing. I've seen this play out in my own life. My wife and I, we, our first house we got, it was a little postage stamp size uh, house, you know, where everything is like basically one room and you could do the dishes while sitting on the couch at the same time because it, it was cozy is how the advertisement was. You know, and they weren't lying, but then when you put a couple of kids in that mix and you're like, this is, it's not just cozy now, it's crowded. And so we told ourselves something that I think just about every family tells themselves at some point. Like, oh, the problem here of like being all on top of each other all the time, not in a good way, is that we need a little more space. All right, so we like sit down and we talk about, man, if, if, with these two little kids, you know, and, and, and they're both like in different size diapers at the time, and we're like, if we just had a little more, if we had a playroom, then the kids would go and play, and like, we could catch our breath, and we could like, whoo, and like calm down for just have a zen moment for just a minute, right? And so we did a house search, and we found a house, we found a house that was a little bigger, had a playroom in it, and we're like, okay, kids, go play in the playroom. And there's a saying in life, wherever you go, there you are. There's a saying in parenting, wherever you go, there they are. Because they just come with you, don't they? Like, there's that playroom, they're not going to go play, right? It's just as crowded as it was before. The standard of living went up, but the quality of life didn't necessarily keep pace with that. And some of you have your own stories. Maybe with zeros on the end of it, and you're like, oh, man, that is so true in my own life again and again and again. We talked about this principle last week about the, your absolute human capacity for your, how you spend your time. And we said whatever that is, there is a philosophical human limit 
to your time? And we just ask, you know, what is your pace of life? And the space in between the absolute limit and your current pace as it relates to time is called margin. It isn't wasted space. It isn't useless space at all. It isn't even white space. It's doing something. It's helping you sleep at night. This space right here, this gap is called breathing room. And it is everything. But the thing is about time, we heard last week, Psalm 90, teach us to count our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. I love that line, verse, verse 12. The thing about time is that you can't get any more of it. We have a finite amount of it. You can't borrow more time. But when we apply this to money, people will literally line up to let us borrow more of it all the time. People will stand at the center field and shoot t-shirts out of a cannon to get us to borrow more money. Bank of America, Visa, Amex, there's plenty of people out there that will help you not only hit your financial limit, but even exceed it. And again, these people do us a service and are not coming down on them and it all just makes it easier. And that's kind of the problem is it makes it just so easy, in fact, to go over our limit. And then all of that margin, or in this case, all of that breathing room just evaporates when we don't have any more of it. And so this is what we're going to ask this morning. Kind of a simple question. Because we know that quality of life is different than standard of living, I'm just going to ask you to ask yourself a simple question. Which of these two things, quality of life or standard of living, which of these two things do you think Jesus is more interested in? If you were going to lean over and talk to somebody important to you, which of them would you be more important? Which one of these would, would be more important to you? Standard of living, quality of life. Man, his marriage is terrible, but at least he drives a really, really cool car. <laughs> Big, beautiful house. But he doesn't want to go inside at the end of the day. In fact, Jesus told a story that cast this so perfectly, so controversially, that people remember the story and retold it for thousands of years afterwards. And I want you to hear the story firsthand to help this land, this plain land, as, as safely and as powerfully um, as it possibly can. And I want to warn you that we're going to read this story, and, and it's controversial. In fact, this was uh, used as evidence in Roman courts uh, to, to try to convict Christians uh, that they were either liars, thieves, or corrupting influences on the population. And they used this story that Jesus told as evidence. Let's read the story. It comes from Luke 16. You can follow along if you'd like to. We're going to hang out on this one uh, for the next few moments. Uh, Luke 16, starting off in verse 1, it says this. That Jesus told his disciples this story. It's, a, it's called a parable. It's a made-up story in order to leverage and drive home a spiritual truth. He told his disciples this story that there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So you got, a, you got a rich guy, and you got the manager who's kind of the accountant and the spender deal. And, and I don't know how this story, like how it takes place, but the, but the rich guy, the, the master in the story, the owner in the story, he keeps bumping into people, and he's like, hey, man, it's, it's good to see you. Strange thing, I just saw your accountant buying a new car at the lot. I don't think it was for you, but he was using your card. You know, and once this happens a few times, the, man, or the owner is like, what's my manager up to? Like, I'm not totally sure about this whole thing. So this is what he does in verse 2. He called him in, and he asked him, what's this I hear about you? 
Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager here any longer. And I want us to recognize the generosity of the master, right? The generosity of the owner. Because what he could have done, especially 2,000 years ago, especially in that day, he could have had him thrown in jail. He could have had him in prison or worse for stealing all this money, right? And so it was his heart of generosity that said, listen, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to kind of dismiss you quietly Okay, I know the shenanigans that you're up to with my money, spending, wasting it. So I'm just going to do this good deed for you. I'm going to dismiss you quietly. So he goes, uh, go ahead and get the books and just and bring them back to me because like, like, like you're done. Now there's two things that are very surprising about this story. Uh, the first one is that the guy doesn't plead for his job at all, right? Because these are small towns, uh, villages of a, of a couple hundred people. He doesn't say something like, Man, my dad worked for you, my grandpa worked for you, my great-grandpa's four generations we've got uh, working together, don't throw it all away. No, the guy doesn't object at all. He just says, okay. Surprising number thing number one. Uh, surprising thing number two on the story is that the guy is fired, but still has the QuickBooks log in. Like, he's got the, oh, he's got the, only, he, the only copy of the records. And the owner, the master, is like, go get the books, bring them to me, I'm going to look through them, I'm going to clean some things up, and I'm going to hand the job over to somebody else. And the guy says, okay, and he goes back. Fired, but still in control of the books. And this is what makes the story so incredibly controversial. This is what he does in verse 3. Now, the manager, the fired guy, said to himself, what do I do now? My master is taking away my job. Friend, you had a little something to do with that, right? It's not just on the master, but anyway, okay. And he goes, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, again, friend, you already lost your job. You just have to turn in the keys. Give them the QuickBooks account. When I lose my job here, I know what I'll do so people will welcome me into their houses. Remember, small villages, couple hundred people, everybody knows everybody. That expression, welcome me into their houses. Businesses were like, uh, were like a family affair, right? A blacksmith, a baker, and these things were like passed down from generation to generation as trades. So like welcome me into their houses was really kind of an idiom or a euphemism for I'm going to be able to get another job. I know what I'll do for a bunch of people so that I can have another job as soon as I'm done with the final deed of this job. So verse four, sorry, verse five, this is his plan. He called in each one of his master's debtors, and we're just gonna get a, two examples here. He asked the first, how much, how much do you owe my master? And the guy goes, 900 gallons of olive oil. That is a ton of olive oil, right? That's a million dollars worth of olive oil, literally. And the manager told him, take your bill, Sit down quickly and make it 450 gallons of olive oil. He just gave them. He just wrote off about a half a million dollars worth of debt for the guy. Like, this is like a stunning conversation that takes place. I mean, the guy, like, hearing this, like, what? And you might ask yourself, how in the world did somebody get upside down 900 gallons of olive oil in the first place? Chances are, the master is like the landowner. He owns all the property around this little village. And so what he does is he leases it out, or maybe he puts it on these long-term con contracts, these huge commercial-grade contracts to a bunch of people around. And he goes, okay, listen, uh, cost, 
you know, is, is 900 gallons of olive oil. You're going to grow olives. You're going to press them for the oil. And every year, you just make a payment, right? It's like the ancient form of a lease or an ancient form of a mortgage. There's nothing monetarily in the story that suggests that the master is corrupted in any way. It's a huge but probably fair price for the person to say. But on the receiving end of this guy who just got forgiven that half a million dollars on his business loan... This is life-changing for that guy. He just took decades off from his mortgage. I mean, everything different in the future is different than it is in the past. But he's not done yet. Verse 7. And then he asks the second, how much do you owe? And this guy grows wheat, so he says, a thousand bushels of wheat. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. And the interesting part of the story is that even though the goods were different, wheat instead of olive oil in a thousand Instead of 900, the, the value of what was forgiven is about the same as much as we can guess. It was, again, forgiven about a half a million dollars worth of wheat. And so this guy, too, his whole life, his family tree, everything changes for him from that moment on. Remember the master, though. How's he going to... How's he going to respond when he finds out that this guy that he fired just sat down with a bunch of his greatest debtors and said, hey, listen, accounts receivable. I'm going to slash all of this a half mil at a time. Verse 8, as Jesus tells the story, the master, I'm sorry, uh, commended? The master commended the dishonest manager, because he acted, and the word there is shrewdly, not the word I would have used to describe what happened there. Not if I'm the master. A couple things. Number one, I'm not nearly as gracious as the master in this story. I don't think you are either. <laughs> I wouldn't call him shrewd. It's such a controversial story, and it's such a, like a parable that Jesus tells us. Like, what in the world is that whole thing about that just stacks have been written over the century to try to make sense of some of this stuff. And so the, what, the best way that we can make sense for it is the, is the master walked into something that was really bigger than, that was, that was bigger than him and, and, and possibly outside of his control. And I'll cast it a little bit like this. It's a small town. It's probably a couple hundred people. This is probably the biggest windfall in the history of that little town. I mean, more money was just, was just written away in, in this quick accounting session than in the history of the town. I mean, people just gained more wealth, except for the master, in this few moments than ever before. I mean, when you do that, and some of you come from a small town, and you're like, oh yeah, in a small town that I'm a part of, everybody knows everything about everybody else. And so when somebody gets a half mil, you tell your neighbor, and they're like, you're not going to believe what happened, friend. <laughs> But I was just given a half a million dollars too. And they both start hugging and they're embracing. They're like, I can't believe this. We should throw a party. We should definitely throw a party. We got more than enough resources. Let's talk to the neighbor across the street. Guess how much he was forgiven for. By the transitive property, you can probably guess it's a half a million dollars, right? And that guy's like, I'm in. Light up the grill. Put some music on. I think the master sees this story play out because he sees the smoke rising in the village and he goes down and checks it out music is going he walks in the room and everybody's like hey he's here he finds out what happened he finds out that the party is in his honor 
he's got a couple of options. He could turn on the music, call the cops. Hey, everybody, there's been a mistake. I fired this guy. He had no legal right to do what he did. I'm going to get an eraser out, fix this accounting mistake. You all owe me another half million dollars. I mean, they'll still be gathering after he's gone, but this time probably with torches and pitchforks. (laughs) Or he could walk into the party in his honor and say, I'm a little less wealthy than I was yesterday. But the people love me. And keep in mind, he's a generous person. He's more generous than I am. I suspect he's at least as generous as you are as well. He didn't have the crook that was taking his money thrown in jail at the first place. He just said, no, no, no. You just can't be manager here any longer. Find something else to do. He lives in to the reputation that this shrewd manager had just created for him. And he says, you got me. Good job. The story that Jesus tells is done. But the disciples are like, what? (laughs) So the application here is we should find a way to steal a half a million dollars? (laughs) Judas is over here having his national treasure moment, like, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Like, let's do this thing. (laughs) And Jesus is like, no, no, no. That is, that is not the takeaway. <laughs> that is not the takeaway of the story. Jesus can kind of see the confused look on their face. And he goes, he goes this, is, uh, this is the takeaway. Don't steal anything. Continuing on in verse 8. For the people of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Like business people. Business people who aren't Christians are so much more clever, are so much more shrewd in dealing with money than, than followers of Jesus. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings what jesus is saying is this is a wild principle that we have to understand as followers of jesus really as human beings but especially as followers of jesus this is mandatory this is something that we just absolutely have to get and jesus points out he goes you guys know people who are really great with money You guys know people who are really great with business, industry. You guys know people who are able to do this wild thing where they take like a little bit of money and they turn it into a lot of money, right? And and a lot of us, we don't really understand how that works, but some people really, really understand how to do that. Some people are so good at this, they take a little bit of stuff and they turn it into a great amount of stuff. And And Jesus is going, I mean, they're objectively really, really good at it. And Jesus is going, Christians, you know, and I think he's talking to like Bible students, right, or or pastors, he's talking to ministry leaders and future ministry leaders, and he goes, you guys kind of like judge the people that are like really good with money and turning into more money, and Jesus is going, maybe instead of judging them, maybe you like learn something from them, right, because they're really good at this one thing, and Christians, we kind of, people of the light, we just kind of like judge that and say, oh, no, 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 that's beneath us, and and, and we're so much better than that, and Jesus is going, no, 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 you're not, it's not beneath you, you just haven't figured it out yet. And Jesus is going, what if, what if you could learn something from them, but instead of taking the money and turning it into more money, let's stop and turning it into more stuff, what if you could take some of that money or take some of that stuff and turn it into a changed life? 
Using some of those same principles, leverage, investment, etc., etc. What if you could do that? After all, Jesus isn't concerned about just getting more money or getting more stuff. No, no, that's not the point. But the principle remains true. That if you can take a little and turn it into a lot, maybe you could take a little stuff or take a little money and you could turn it into a lot of people. He says, use worldly wealth not to gain more wealth. That's what other people do and they're great at it. But just, you know, instead of knocking on them, learn something from them. Use worldly wealth to gain friends. So that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed to eternal dwellings. The ramifications of this thing are nothing short than eternity. For Jesus, people are always infinitely more important than possessions. But for Jesus, the two aren't so far off. He goes, you can use possessions to make an eternal difference on people. Learn something from that. Because that's what the guy in the story did. He took, it's not even money, it's olive oil, right? It's not even olive oil, it's a debt for olive oil. And he found a way to leverage, he found a way to turn that accounts receivable for not even him, but for his master. He found a way to turn that into a changed relationship dynamic, a party, a celebration. The whole town is now different. Take a page from that. Use your stuff to change eternities. And we get to see this play out from time to time. Like how I started this, this time together, and I said, listen, at Encounter Church, I've got very much the best seat in the house to see what Jesus is up to all the time. And it's amazing. Like, like right now, we've got a seminary intern and his wife, or I guess experience director, Dylan and Jessica, and their daughter in India serving Jesus. How did they get there? I mean, an airplane was involved too, but also money. Like your money allowed that to happen. So now they're telling people about Jesus in India because of the money that was able to make that happen. Also, they're being changed because of the financial resources of the people in India who are now investing into them. And they come back, and then we are going to change, and we are going to grow as a result. And Jesus is pointing out, like, people, you know, shrewd people of the world, they get this money, have this power to, like, change, oftentimes, eternal destinations. And we see it playing all the way around the world in India. We get to see it with our youth group happening in Haida and God's vision for Haiti. We get to see it happen in Nepal as a family that's been a part of this church for quite a while. Goes out and says, I want to start a new church. I want to start a church in the country of Nepal because they need desperately to hear about the hope of Jesus Christ. It's awesome to see. Like I said, I get the best seat in the house to see your money be transformed into changed lives. Shameless plug for the annual report. All this is is story after story of how God turned your money into changed lives. 31 baptisms, 52 people joining a small group for the first time, 61 people joining a serving group, serving team for the very first time. It's powerful, powerful stuff. But, some of us aren't able to participate And Jesus recognizes that too. All of this that happens is great for anybody who's not a Christian, on the fence, not really sure. I think there's a ton of wisdom here, right? Standard of living, quality of life, totally different. But for those who read this parable being told, it's not just words on a page, but the words of God being whispered into your heart. 
you know that as this line of the pace creeps up to your financial limit or possibly even goes over, forget about breathing room. There's no room. There's no room to even follow through on those convictions of Jesus to do the thing that he was talking about, to take our money and to turn it into changed lives, change eternal destinations as a result, because all of the money that we have right now is already pledged to somebody else. It's already pledged to whoever shot that t-shirt out of a cannon when you were 18 and signed up for the Bank of America card. Amex, Visa. You sold your calling of Jesus for a few airline reward points. And it's like, man... If I could get this thing back, and Jesus starts to get that if you're a slave to debt, you can't follow Jesus. And so he applies this line in verse 13, continuing on in the story. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and And now maybe for the first time for some of us it kind of makes sense why he doesn't say the devil. You can't serve God and serve the devil, no. You can't serve God and serve sin, true, but no. God and money. Because to be honest, serving the devil really isn't all that tempting, is it? But Jesus chooses a hugely powerful neutral. and says this is the real competitor for your heart. You can't serve God and money. You can't follow Christ when you're a slave to debt. And a lot of us, we get that. Because we say, I want to serve God. I just can't. I already have a pastor. And you know what it does emotionally. You know when you're upside down. You know when you can't... Breathe financially. You know when you're on the edge of losing like so much. You know, the, you know the shame that you carry. You know all of that. You know when you hear those words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount when he says all self-righteously with flowing hair and little birds that land on his shoulder, don't worry about anything. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. You know what that does to you internally. It it does this nasty, nasty thing because you're like, I've got so much worries, man. And I wish I could take it all back. You know what that does to you when you read the one another's in the Bible? One of the followers, John, spoke so much of this. One another's, one another's. Love one another, care for one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. You know that when you're like, at your limit or maybe even above it, when you're hurting, there's nothing that you can do but think about yourself. There's no one another. It's like how, however gracious you are and when you hit your thumb with a, with a hammer, miss the nail, light on your thumb, you're not thinking about one another. You're thinking about the part that hurts. You're thinking about yourself. I become the most selfish person in the world when I'm hurting and financially a lot of us, we're in that hurting place and there is no one another. We can't serve Jesus. He gets that too. Which is why he graciously told this story and shared this principle with us. He wants you to have that abundant life. He wants you to have the quality of life. But to get there, we're going to have to do probably one of the most un-American things 
that I can think of. We are going to have to actually lower our standard of living to gain a quality of life. And I say that with fear and trepidation because somebody, while we're having this conversation, is going to get a shipping notification from Amazon that something you didn't need is on your porch right now. (laughs) And it might be me. (laughs) I airplane mode my phone, okay? So you don't have to at Encounter, but I knew what was coming, so (laughs) beware. Some of you are going, man, I, that's gonna, it's going to be painful because there's going to be, and I don't know what that, I'm not going to tell you to make a specific sacrifice. I don't know what that looks like for you. But, it, but if you're sensing that conviction, if you're going, man, I want that quality, I want that abundant life that Jesus talked about, and I want that quality of life, and I know that I'm going to have to reduce my standard of living to increase my quality of life. I just don't know what to do next. Thank you for asking the question. Two action steps coming out of this thing, and they kind of sort of rhyme. The first one is to decide. Uh, just make a decision. Like, make a decision. I am going to do it. I'm going to create this space. And I'm not going to call it, I'm not going to call it wasted space. I'm not going to call it even margin. I'm going to call it breathing room. In my budget, I'm going to decide, number one, I'm going to decide to live on a portion of my income that's less than what all of it is, presumably. Right? I'm going to decide it's going to be 90%. It's going to be 80% and save some. It's going to be 95%. I don't even care what it is. I'm just telling you to create this, to decide to create this space. That's number one. And number two that kind of sort of rhymes along with it is to spy. It doesn't really rhyme, but it does if you say it quickly. Decide and spy. Spy on your money. Peek at it. Take a look at like where it's going. I think if you're a follower of Jesus, there's somewhat of a, a biblical mandate, like he said, to follow your money because Jesus said, wherever your money is, there your heart is too. So if you don't know where the money is going, there's a good chance you're not sure where your heart is going either. So spy on the money and check it out. A blessing and a curse, the pros and cons, is that the vast majority of us live, uh, spend our money using electronic means, Venmo, Cash App, Visa, credit card, whatever it is, Somebody's spying on it already, right? Somebody knows how much you spend. You might be the last person to figure this thing out, but like spy on it. It's all right there. All the records are right there. And if you're wise to learn from somebody else's mistakes, you can use me for this one too. 10 years ago, it wasn't working. 10 years ago, I could see this thing, this principle play out. You can't serve Christ when you're a slave to debt. 10 years ago, I'm like, man, it isn't so much of a debt thing, but it's just like a pace and limit is like right on the same all the time, every month. This isn't how Jesus wanted me and my wife to live. So it was about 10 years ago, we sat down and we got honest about it. We've done like FPU, Financial Peace University. We've done some of this stuff in the past already, but it was about 10 years ago that we're like, no, for real, we are doing this. And a little over 10 years ago, we sat down, we started tracking, we spied on our money every single penny. And my wife is worshiping at Fulton Heights right now. If you're there, you can ask her about it later, and she will be delighted to tell you about our budget meetings in the playroom (laughs) that my kids don't use. And we write down where every penny goes. Because we decided that life is more When we live on less, we decided when we know where our money goes and we can pull those levers and pull back our standard of living, our quality of life goes up. We did that. And man, it is to the extent now, looking back, that if you're curious how much we spend on gasoline in March 
of 2016? I could tell you. Give me a minute. It's a spreadsheet. You got fancier things than that. I know that you, you're, I'm old. You guys got this thing figured out. There's, there's an app, I'm sure, that's out there and somewhere. But we decided and we spied. And the thing is, once you spy in your money for long enough, it's very repetitive and it's very boring. <laughs> Three to six months, and you start to figure out, like, okay, this is kind of what it is. And then it's just on repeat. And I could guess, even without doing it, I could guess within a few dollars probably of where the budget, where the account landed for groceries that month, for date that month, for whatever it is. And so every once in a while, we sit down and we ask each other, is this still worth it? Like relationally, it's the abundant life. We're getting along so much better. But like practically, is it worth it to like keep doing this when it's just so repetitive and we know how it turns out time and time again? And you know what we decided? We're going to keep doing it just so that I can tell you that we do it to get you to do it. (laughs) I don't think we need to anymore, to be honest, but it gives me the moral authority to stand here and to say, I actually do this sort of stuff. And I would encourage you guys to do it too, because I think once you decide and once you spy, and once you start living on less, you'll find out that life so much more. And you'll start to see Jesus a little bit more too. I want to invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Jesus, this abundant life thing is so much and it's so big. God, and there's a lot of different facets to it. And there's a lot of competitors for our heart. God, We know ourselves. We know that it's always a little bit more. And we know that that's an appetite that will never be fully and finally satisfied. So God, give us the courage this week to decide. Give us the wisdom this week to spy and to figure out where, not our money, where our hearts are really going. God, may we be pleased with the fruit that we see. May we be encouraged if we don't see it today that we will see it in the next season. God, for somebody who's carrying so much and feels so upside down, spirit, in a way that maybe only you are possible, remind them that they are not alone. Remind them that all things are possible. Remind them of who you are. Remind them that there is an empty grave that says, God, that you can, and there is a cross that says that you care about everything that is happening in their life. And church, before we close, I just want to invite you to head to the table in one of our auditoriums. We have somebody there to pray with you. Maybe it's a financial burden, a concern. Maybe it's something else that you just thought of. But during this last song, Jesus would love to meet you there. Jesus, we pray all of this in your risen name. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.